Hello, listener, and welcome to Straight Shot Health Talk. This is the podcast that provides honest and straightforward information about health, wellness, and how to survive our crazy healthcare system. This is for people who want to focus on getting well instead of just treating symptoms. Sound like you? Then let's get started. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. With us today is esteemed guest, Dr. David Schechter. Dr. David Schechter is a physician who currently practices in Southern California. He graduated with a degree in biochemistry from Princeton University. Then he attended medical school at New York University. While there, he suffered from nagging knee pain and was introduced to Dr. John Sarno. Now, Dr. John Sarno was the author of, or is the author of, some of the best-selling books on chronic pain, including Healing Back Pain and The Mind-Body Prescription. After learning of the role between the stress, the brain, and pain, Dr. Schechter quickly overcame his own knee problems and spent the following summer working with Dr. Sarno, seeing his patients. The results he saw then confirmed his own personal experiences, and he adopted Dr. Sarno's techniques into his own practice. Today, Dr. Schechter practices medicine, as I said, in Southern California, where he also serves on the faculty of the uh, University of Southern California School of Medicine. He has been named a top doctor by both Men's Health Magazine and by U.S. News and World Report. And his new book, Think Away Your Pain, was just released last week. Dr. Schechter, thanks for joining us on Straight Shot Health Talk. Thank you very much for having me. All right. We just kind of touched on some of your background back there. Could you kind of fill in the gaps or at least let, let the listeners know a little bit more about you? Well, I, certainly that was a very formative experience. Um, learning from Dr. Sarno as a medical student, spending time with him, doing research with him. I went on and trained in family medicine, uh, sports medicine, and have focused a lot on mind, body, and, and pain management over the last uh, 20 years. Um, that gives you a little bit of my background. Can you provide a little bit of background on Dr. Sarno? Uh, I'm familiar with him, but a lot of the listeners may not be because unfortunately I think there's a lot of people that just aren't aware of his ideas or his practices. John Sarno, who is currently retired, um, practiced rehabilitation medicine for over 50 years at the Rusk Institute with NYU School of Medicine. And initially his work was in the area of aphasia, helping people who've had strokes learn how to speak. But he then became director of outpatient rehabilitation medicine at Rusk. And in doing so, he saw hundreds and, and actually thousands of people with back pain and other injuries to be rehabilitated. He found without specifically looking for it, so to speak, just by being observant, just by being a good empiricist, he found that those patients whom he reassured, those patients whom he did not make excessive uh, value for their x-ray findings, and those patients whom he educated as to the generally benign nature of back pain got better and got better quickly. And on the other hand, those people who seemed not to get better, he noticed some common personality traits and he noticed uh, other factors and he began to formulate a theory that a lot of chronic pain had a mind-body origin or mind-body connection. And this is what led him to publish a couple of papers in medical journals on this subject, this theory, and then to write some books for the general public, several of which became bestsellers. Uh, most of his career was spent treating in excess of 10,000 patients with this approach, and as I mentioned, writing and speaking about the subject. 
Can you kind of fill us in a little bit more on mind-body syndrome? Mind-body syndrome, or as Sarno called it, tension myositis syndrome or tension myoneural syndrome, is a condition of physical pain, real pain, where looking for the cause of that pain in the body or in the structures of the spine, the arms, the legs, etc., ends up being unproductive. And looking for the cause of the problem more in the mind-brain, the nervous system, the psyche, if you will, the emotions, is actually the more fruitful approach to finding the cause and successfully treating the condition. So in some ways, it's it's feeling something in your body, but really the, the root cause of it has to do more with the central or brain rather than a bulging disc or any of those things that we know from lots of studies now really don't have a correlation with pain. Exactly. You know, one of the back in the day when Sarno started, there weren't the MRI and CT scan imaging, which is so common today, but he made the same type of associations with x-rays. Doctors were assuming that very subtle x-ray findings like mild scoliosis and a condition called spina bifida occulta, where the bottom of the spine doesn't close properly. This is differentiated from the true spina bifida condition. Where doctors were trying to pin these uh, minor x-ray findings as the cause of back pain, the cause of persistent back pain. But that was not Dr. Sarno's experience, and he ultimately found that a number of researchers had looked at people with and without, for example, back pain, and found that there was no difference in the incidence of these X-ray findings. As you point out, later on, starting in about the 90s and going forward, the same type of research data has been obtained by very prestigious people at uh, Harvard and at uh, in Seattle and uh, Stanford, et cetera, that imaging findings of the spine, such as a bulging disc, differentiating from a massive herniated disc squeezing a nerve, uh, are, is again equally prevalent among people without symptoms, not only equally prevalent, but is extremely common, so that if you just MRI'd people on the street without pain, you'd find these types of findings regularly. Therefore, we can't use those findings as an explanation for back pain. And the same thing applies to pain in other parts of the body. MRI and CT imaging, which are three-dimensional types of X-ray and magnetic imaging, are very powerful tools. And they can find things that doctors of generations before only wish they could possibly see without cutting the body open, for example, in the form of exploratory surgery. However, we see too much. <laughs> and what we need is more wisdom in order to interpret what we are actually seeing as to the significance of that. And I think Dr. Sarno started that work with his uh, TMS or mind-body syndrome diagnosis and other doctors are now continuing the work forward, uh, incorporating research in many cases done by people with no interest at all in this condition, but who confirm with their research the uh, empirical observations, findings, and uh, beliefs that we have about the, the cause of pain. Now, and these aren't just some idea coming out of nowhere. I mean, you know, Dr. Sarno practiced at NYU for, for a number, a number of years. But he also had some very famous patients. Could you do you know any of those patients? I, I know a few, <laughs> and um, some of them are 
more public about that than others. But uh, Dr. Sarno treated uh, Anne Bancroft, who was a famous actress, and uh, her husband was Mel Brooks at one point. He treated a, a U.S. senator. I don't believe I'm allowed to say his name, but you'll have to believe me on that. He treated numerous celebrities, actors, um, political figures, etc., some of whom, again, preferred their privacy or anonymity. Uh, but in addition to treating these folks, he treated many thousands of people who came to see him throughout the tri-state area and for a while who came to see him from around the country. As a coterie of followers or physicians trained by Dr. Sarno developed, he began later in his career not to want to see people from out of state for logistical reasons and for follow-up reasons. And kind of that's how my practice developed 20 some odd years ago, because he learned that I was practicing in Southern California. He knew that I was interested in his diagnosis from my own personal experience and from my research under him at the Rusk Institute. So he began referring patients to me. I thought it would be just a, a trickle, but it turns out that his books really had made an impression on a lot of people, and it led to a steady stream of individuals who were coming to me already open to this diagnosis. You know, a crucial part of this is obviously that the diagnosis is correct in that individual, but another part is that the individual is open to the diagnosis. So in my practice, I'm of course, regularly finding people for whom this diagnosis applies, not all of them accept the diagnosis, at least initially. Among the people referred to me from Dr. Sarno's office when he was in practice, or who have already read a book on this subject, or who have studied on the internet on this subject, they are, in a sense, have a leg up, because they're already open to it, they're already willing to hear what I have to say. There may be an element of skepticism, I, I don't have no problem with that. There may be a need to convince them of the reality of this diagnosis and for to hear from a physician that this is the diagnosis, but it makes a big difference if the person has done that preliminary educational review, which again, now most people do through the internet as well as books and eBooks and audio books and all these kinds of things. So why do you think you know, a lot of Dr. Sarno's ideas, or at least this idea of, of how the brain relates, particularly with pain and physical symptoms, that there's not a wider adoption within the physician community? That's a very good question. I think there's a number of answers to that, and I've thought about it over the years. Uh, one is that I think Dr. Sarno jumped ahead. As many scientists from the past, as many thinkers from different generations, some people are able to see something before the full scientific evidence is in. So Dr. Sarno, in a sense, built a beautiful house, but it didn't have a foundation or a basement in the sense of scientific research and data at that time. Since then, there has been a lot more scientific evidence about the general field and about the uh, mechanisms by which this syndrome could uh, actually exist and how it's treated successfully. Another factor is that uh, physicians are very oriented toward what they've been trained to do, which primarily is prescribing medications, doing procedures like injections, and doing surgery, depending on their specialty. Sitting and talking with a patient, exploring their psychosocial history, exploring their stresses and emotions is not what most medical doctors do. And so Dr. Sarno's contribution, in my mind, was to bring together, in a sense, the psychological or psychiatry side of medicine with the medical and surgical side of medicine to integrate them. But many years before this was 
considered to be uh, a, a modern trend to integrate different, different forms of medicine together. So there's the uh, financial incentive, if you will, to do medical procedures and to do testing and to do surgery. There is the uh, training that physicians have had, not in the psychosocial or biopsychosocial model, but rather in the biomedical or biomechanical model. And there is the lack of a, 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 um, a dynamic research program with the funding that would be required to test this type of pro this approach in large numbers of patients. I will say that we have published a number of papers. Uh, they represent smaller, more preliminary research, not the kind of very expensive research that takes millions of dollars to do, and for which in the mind-body field, no pharmaceutical companies are going to fund the bill for this or medical device companies because it goes against what they want to sell to the, the customer and the, and the client and the patient. So those are some of the reasons why it hasn't caught on. But I will say that there are at least a couple of dozen dedicated physicians in North America and a few scattered around the world in other countries, many dozen psychotherapists that are interested in this. And my hope is that even podcasts such as this will help uh, the process of educating making people aware of this um, this condition you know the the recent book that you mentioned that I just published uh, of late um, one of the doctors who gave me a quote for it a neurosurgeon uh, got one of the early copies read it and he texted me today he wanted me to speak at his hospital to neurologists and neurosurgeons about the subject so that's a step forward and you and I met at a, a meeting in Seattle where uh, Dr. Hanscom, another physician interested in this technique, David Hanscom in Seattle, brought together a number of physicians, including yourself and myself and some others, David Clark, to dialogue on this subject and to make some presentations in front of osteopaths, pain management fellows, and other doctors. So, you know, I remain optimistic that over time it will catch on to a greater degree. But what has driven this uh, movement, so to speak, or driven this diagnosis has been patient interest. So many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of patients have been helped both through books, websites, and in a sense, self-treatment, plus again, many tens of thousands seeing Dr. Sarno, myself, and other physicians in this field, that that seems to be what's driving the field forward rather than a medical society or a medical subspecialty in which there has been more resistance than interest in many cases. No, I, I, I definitely agree. And you touched on so many important points in there, the incentives that we have. And, you know, I, I, I wonder sometimes, I don't think a lot of doctors go out to harm patients. I think that's obviously not something that we do. But our training definitely emphasizes that we're supposed to be the smartest person in the room, that we need to provide a diagnosis even when there is not one that we can wake with any degree of reliability. And so what I used to tell patients is, you know, they get these, these imaging studies and the doctor wants to help them, wants to tell them that this is the cause of their pain. And in some cases, I think we do more harm than good when we say, hey, this is a, you know, that's your bulging disc is causing your back pain when we really, we know the data doesn't support that. Well, terminology is very important. I, I hear patients all the time who come in very nervous, very frightened, because someone has said, you have X, Y, and Z, and it's going to hurt the rest of your life. 
How a physician can know that, I don't know, because we are trained in medicine. We're not prophets or religious figures, and we certainly can't know what will happen in the future. Um, but you, you, you bring up the point that most physicians are well-meaning, but they may be limited in how they can approach something based on their training, skills, aptitudes, the kinds of personalities that are drawn to medicine in the first place or are selected by medical education to be very good at science and good at biomechanical, biomedical approach. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why um, you know, this is not going as well as it should for patients, but patients are starting to demand more and seek out more. Unfortunately, not everyone knows about this. The more patients that know about this, the more they'll be asking their physicians, well, do you, do you know anything about this condition? Or do you know a physician who might be able to treat it? Or how do you know that my bulging disc is in fact the cause of my pain? Maybe I just have had a bulging disc for a long time and my back started hurting only a few months or a year ago or whatever. So there really are a lot of scientific questions that have not been answered that are sometimes physicians act as if they have been answered. And again, a lot of it is how you talk to patients. You know, there's a reassuring healing method of talking to people, and there is a frightening, I'm, I'm the owner of this powerful information and tools, you're lucky to be in the room with me, and I'll share some of this information as I choose, and I'll answer the questions that I prefer to answer. And unfortunately, that's the attitude of, uh, let's say, a minority, but a significant minority of physicians out there. And there's also the culture of fear where physicians are scared of being blamed for something, I think, in some regard. And if they tell patients they're going to get better and then that, that patient then, for whatever reason, doesn't and comes back and says, this is all your fault, which brings in a whole host of other issues just with that kind of comment alone. Um, I, I do think there's some, there's some fear driven in, in our medical community. But. One of the fears might be fear of rejection. If you have a patient in front of you and you do what is expected, like prescribe a medication or suggest a procedure or a test, the patients are happy in general, at least initially. I, I know in my own experience that testing patients, whatever the test may be, they seem to find that to be reassuring. The doctor's doing something to find out what's wrong with me, and I understand that. On the other hand, uh, you know, doing things that really aren't medically necessary or where there are other alternatives that are more appropriate, um, there is that, that fear of rejection. The doctor feels like he's going out on a limb. He says to a patient, you know, after reviewing your history, your examination, your MRI, and having looked through this little personality questionnaire that we've looked that we've done together, I think your problem might be stress. Now, some patients are going to go, "Oh, doc, you're absolutely right. I'm having trouble in my marriage and this." But other patients may say, "Stress? I didn't come to a psychiatrist. I came to a pain management doctor, orthopedic surgeon, rehabilitation doctor, whatever." How come you're talking to me about stress? Are you saying I'm crazy, doctor? And that then the doctor feels like he's being rejected or he's being the patient's going to run out and call him a kook, write a bad Yelp review, whatever it may be today. And you're right, there's a fear factor as well. Yeah, which is, which is impressive considering when you look at the data on chronic stress, the amount of health problems it accelerates, causes to bring about, or, or you know, the, the substantial harms it has, it really is practically the number one health issue that we have in America in this day and age. Yeah, but I, you know, I just had to be smiling there when you were talking about it because I, you see those people and they're like, stress, just, how could this be stress? I'm like, oh, you just, you know, it's so frustrating to see that. But So let's go back then to your first experiences then with Dr. Sarno with your knee pain. 
because we talked about, or you just kind of brought on the point, you have to be ready to kind of approach this diagnosis. So what do you think is the most important first step for someone out there who may be having chronic pain, chronic headaches, whatever the case may be, and would like to find more information or at least get into this process of addressing the central role when it comes to pain? Well, one of the things certainly is to do your due diligence as a patient or as a doctor, um, you know, have be examined, have the appropriate testing to rule out anything serious because in a very small percentage of cases, there will be something serious that needs to be addressed. You know, one of the things that I brought to my first visit with Dr. Sarno, and I think a lot of patients bring it to my to visit with me, is desperation. If you've tried a lot of things, you tried physical therapy, you tried acupuncture, you tried chiropractic, you tried a little bit of medication, you tried a bunch of different conventional and alternative approaches and you're not improving, well, this is when you really need to think more deeply about, hey, maybe it is in my central nervous system, my brain, my mind, my emotions, because I've done the right things to get well otherwise. And in fact, the doctor says, yeah, your disc is not that bad or your spine is not that bad or your nerve testing is normal. So desperation can lead to a willingness to change or a willingness to be open. And as I mentioned, openness is an important aspect of moving forward with this. When I first met Dr. Sarno, he listened to my history for two or three minutes and then looked at me and said, you've seen all, all the good doctors here at NYU. Would you believe that about 95% of chronic pain is probably psychosomatic? And again, I was shocked, but I was at least willing to listen. I was a medical student. I wanted to learn. I was curious about this area and he invited me to a seminar. So obviously all of you can't be invited to a seminar, but we have the internet now. So we have a lot of different ways that you can access information. There's websites that a number of physicians and the national organization have put up. And you can look at brief videos, podcasts, uh, written material. And for relatively little, you can order a book, either at a local bookstore or an amazon.com etc. So there's a lot of good resources to approach this. And when you compare it to one copay for even physical therapy, or you compare it to paying out of pocket for other types of medical treatments, uh, a couple of books, a CD, a DVD, uh, whatever it costs, is going to be a lot less. And it might, it might turn things around for you. It might make a substantial change in your life. That ringing is going to end in a second. I apologize. <laughs> no problem. No problem. All right. So um, you have authored a couple of books. One of them, as we talked about briefly before, is Think Away Your Pain, which was just released last week. Think Away Your Pain. Yes, we'll you know, uh, link to that definitely on Amazon here, uh, as well as the um, your Mind Body Prescription Workbook. What if you if you can, can you give us a little introduction between the differences between the two books for an individual? OK, thank you. That's a that's a good question. You know, I wrote the Mind-Body Workbook about 15 years ago. It, it's been read and used by you know, many thousands of patients uh, a, as a tool. And I want to explain wh why I started with it. 20 years ago, let's say, I started having patients journal regularly. Journaling means writing down your feelings. I call it, ex it's called expressive journaling. There was some preliminary research that had already come out saying that expressive journey, journaling, daily writing about your feelings could be very helpful for a variety of medical conditions, and I believed it could help in this condition because there was a stress and, 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 and emotion element to the chronic pain. So patients initially started journaling just in a blank notebook, and that's very helpful. 
But the problem is after you journal in a blank notebook for a few days, you begin to run out of things to, to talk about, to write about. So I created the Mind Body Workbook as a structured journal or a guided journal, which would take a person through a 30-day process of exploration with the questions at the beginning being a little more superficial and each week going a little deeper into some of the important emotional issues involved. The process of writing is what helps you to feel better, to get better, to make some emotional connections, et cetera. And the workbook helps you to structure that and to get through the months uh, or so process of the 30-day workbook. The new book, Think Away Your Pain, brings together really the last 25 years of my experience in this field. I wanted to write something that would update Dr. Sarno's excellent work, his four books that were uh, widely, uh, widely read in bestsellers. I wanted to update it to bring together some of the modern neuroscience research and understanding in a clear, simple way for patients and, and the lay public that will read it. And I wanted to also describe the systematic healing program I have. For example, I have a 12 stages of healing chapter, which helps people to understand what stages they're in, what steps they have to take, and what to expect going forward. And I discuss each of those stages in, in the book in detail. I also have the seven lessons of pain because there are, and I can read a couple of those to you in a moment if you wish, because there are things about pain that are a lot more complicated or confusing than they initially seem. When you understand that pain is not as simple or clear cut as you think it is or as you thought it would be, then you can begin to think differently. And this program is really about thinking differently about your pain, and that's why I entitled it Think Away Your Pain, because changing what you think and believe leads to dramatic changes in the nervous system, in the neural pathways that I believe help to make this condition disappear. And that's what I've seen in my practice over the years. No, absolutely. And I think there there's a huge amount of data that talks about the complexity of pain. You know, it's I think one of the other really harmful things that has occurred is people have a tendency to think that, you know, there's pain is like a broken bone or that there's somehow a difference between emotional pain and physical pain. You know, all pain is essential process. All pain requires an awake brain to do. And pain being an experience by medical definition, and it is an, it's a experience of pain, not just a noun, is, um, you know, the beliefs that you have, the expectations you have over what's happening, you know, past learning behavior with it has all sorts of influences when it comes to chronic pain. And if you manipulate those in little subtle ways, change, reduce the fear of someone, you know, make it not, you know, you know, not an expectation that they're going to be crippled. You talked about the profits that we are in, in, uh, in medical society, which is, you know, I've seen a couple of those myself. It, it really is just astronomical. So let's let's hear those those uh, the the seven what was it the seven seven lessons of pain seven lessons and, you know, of pain. And Kevin, in your brief comments just now, I think you covered three or four of them. So. Uh, <laughs> in different ways. So lesson one, and these are in no particular order, uh, you know, they're discussed, each discussed in the book in different situations, but lesson one, the source of chronic pain is often the nervous system and brain, not structural injury. And so, you know, that's pretty obvious in terms of what I'm trying to say, which is structural injury, like a broken bone, like a burned finger on the stove is one source of pain 
But chronic pain is often something else. It's a condition more of the nervous system in the brain. Lesson two, and this is one you alluded to in your comments, the context and the interpretation of the pain by the patient and the per perceived significance of the pain are crucial. So when you believe your pain to be due to something serious, it seems to last longer and be more severe. And if you believe your pain is something that, again, real physical pain, but it's gonna go away in a matter of days or a week, you don't worry about it as much. And lo and behold, it goes away even quicker than you think in most cases. Lesson three, and this is again based on my experience, psychology and education can change the mind brain and cure pain, not just manage it. This refers to the fact that a lot of conventional pain psychology as differentiated from the TMS mind-body pain psychology focuses on managing pain and that has a value rather than actually curing it which I believe we can do and we do regularly with this uh, this approach lesson four pain does not always mean disease or damage this is a key one for patients because again our experience with acute pain is you get pain when you get damage you get hit with a hammer and it hurts. You put your finger on a stove and you pull it back so you don't get burnt. But pain does not always mean that. In fact, you mentioned that research at UCLA and elsewhere has shown that social pain is experienced very similar to physical pain. But social pain doesn't involve a damage to the nervous system, just to your ego perhaps. Here's an interesting one. They've done some studies recently on acetaminophen. We call it Tylenol. You take that and you seem to experience less social rejection as well as taking away your headache. Well, that really shows us the connection there between social pain uh, and social rejection and physical pain and doesn't have to be damaged. And it seems like Tylenol still helps, which doesn't mean I'm telling you to take it all the time because it has its own risk. Lesson five, the severity of the pain does not always correlate with the severity of the condition or the potential for damage to the body. So for example, a very mild pain in your neck going down your left arm, if you're a 60 year old man, could be a heart attack. And an absolutely excruciating pain in that 60 year old man in his, in his flank, the side, of his, the side of his back, could be a kidney stone that in four hours will pass and will go completely away, he'll be completely fine, but it's about the most excruciating pain you could have. So the severity of the pain doesn't correlate. And if you understand that, you also understand other types of pain. Uh, the severity may not correlate with what you, what's wrong with you. Mild pain could be something serious if it persists. And severe pain might be nothing at all serious. That's why you need a physician who is skilled in this to help you. Lesson six, pain signals or sensory signals are a two-way street. The mind brain plays a crucial role in what you feel. We tend to think that pain's a one-way street. Something is touching your body, shoots up to your brain, your awareness, and you notice it as pain. But it turns out that the brain is also sending signals down to the body. And some of those signals inhibit pain or turn it off, and some of them amplify it, like this mind-body syndrome, and turn it up. Example of this is when I first sat down here on this chair 20 minutes ago, my body was brief, my brain was briefly aware of the, of the sitting. But then my sensation of sitting from my buttocks where I'm sitting completely went away. I didn't even know I was sitting here. I'm just talking to Kevin. 
And then maybe out after 15, 20 minutes, you want to adjust positions, you briefly become aware of those same sensations again. But again, it's a two-way street because those sensations are always there. They're just being ignored by the brain, as they should be, because we don't need that information at that point. And lesson seven, mind-body pain keeps coming back until you are firm in your belief that there are no physical causes. And this has been my experience that many people with mind-body syndrome, TMS, different terminology we use for it, they really need to have a clear assertion of a diagnosis by a physician. And sometimes the appropriate imaging test interpreted by that same mind-body oriented physician. An example of this would be a man who I knew quite well, knew him socially, and he was having this severe back pain for a few weeks, and it was affecting his ability to do things. I didn't have time to get him in the office, but he, he had reasonable uh, you know, means, and I just said, hey, you can get a, an MRI for a low cash rate at a local imaging center, and they'll send me the results, and then we can set up an appointment. So the, he did it that day. One of the good things about our healthcare system is you can get testing kind of quickly in the U.S. compared to other countries, especially if you're willing to pay for it. I got the report the same day, although I didn't have the images yet, and his MRI was completely clear. And I, I trust the radiologist, although I eventually would look at the images. So I called him up and I said, your MRI is totally clear. You have nothing in, structurally going on in your spine. He said, thanks for the information. I'll set up an appointment to see you. The next day I got an email from him that his pain had gone away. So he was not clear in his mind on the fact that the pain was a stress-related pain, but when he was reassured by me that there was nothing wrong at all structurally with this MRI, again, a doctor who was not going to be looking for um, a million other explanations, but was going to really hone in, is this structural or is it not structural? Let's, let's talk about what's going on in your life. Boom, the pain went away. So that firmness and belief can be important. I think that's kind of an interesting anecdote. So I'm, I wanted to share it with you. No, absolutely. And it, and it is so true. I, I think almost anybody can relate to that in some way, shape or form. If you go in and someone reassures you, you feel better. Going back to childhood when you smashed your finger in a door and your mom or dad came up and hugged you and supported you and said things are going to be OK. Most of the time we felt better from that. So. You know, I just, uh, it, it, it's just very interesting, and, and particularly knowing what we do about the medical world that we live in, uh, it, it get a little frustrating. <laughs> a little frustration comes up when you see what happens to be happening when, you know, direct cost with back pain, $100 billion, higher rates of spinal surgery than anywhere else in the world with no, no better outcomes and probably worse outcomes. The amount of injections that we're doing, the amount of medications that are prescribed in something, I don't want necessarily simple, but something that is as low tech with minimal, I mean, there's no harms associated with it, such as addressing stress and emotions and pain, uh, remains, you know, not shouted from the tops of the mountaintops. So anyway, Dr. Schechter, I don't want to keep more of your time here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, oh, are there any specific places that we talked about your book, the mind body prescription workbook, as well as think away your pain, both available on, on, on Amazon and will be linked in the show notes, but any particular websites or ways for people to get in contact with you? Well, my, my main website for this subject is www.mindbodymedicine.com. I was lucky to get that kind of early so I could, I got that URL and my practice website is schectormd.com for those in California who, might uh, 
want to check that out. S-C-H-E-C-H-T-E-R-M-D.com. So those are uh, resources, and I have a lot of links to other websites, and I'll probably add a link to this discussion as well. Um, so thank you again for taking the time to talk to me about this. I know we're both passionate about this field. And it's great talking to you. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Schechter. And all you listeners out there, I would advise you to check out those books, see Dr. Schechter's website, and find yourself fully informed when it comes to chronic pain and particularly the mind-body syndrome. And until next time, stay well. <laughs>